Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Welcome to Democracy-ish. I'm Torre. And I'm Danielle Moody. And I want to take a break from the intense election coverage that we've been trying to do. Talk about a big idea that's going around, been going around, but Nicole Hannah-Jones penned another brilliant piece for the New York Times, it's for the magazine, talking about reparations and once again making the case for reparations. And in a moment when people are demanding the moon with a new level of fervor and a new sense that we deserve everything, a conversation about reparations feels especially ripe, and there seems to be an uptick in the number of white people who may be willing to accept that as an idea. And one of the things that Nicole points out in the piece is that the ways, the economic ways that white people have screwed us are many, and not privately so much in her piece, Ta-Nehisi Jones in his piece about Coates, Ta-Nehisi Coates in his piece <laughs> years ago, talks about how individuals had screwed us. But Nicole Hannah-Jones really deals with the ways that the federal government has helped white people, oftentimes foreign-born white people, and screwed black people. You're not so, just talking about Melania, right? Okay, there, is, there, is, <laughs> there is a willingness to have reparations for other people, like Holocaust survivors. Mm -hmm. There is clearly money when you see, like, let's give trillions to deal with coronavirus— the problem is the lack of a political will to make black people whole for 250 years of slavery. And that's what we're dealing with. I think that now, honestly, is the time for big, bold ideas. I mean, we spent last episode talking about defunding the police, right, which was considered a fringe idea from the left, worked up by a bunch of radicals. And now we are seeing across multiple police departments and cities, municipalities actually take the idea seriously. And so when we look at what I think is really interesting, which I've talked about a lot, is the Monmouth Poll. And the Monmouth poll says currently that 76% of Americans and 71% of white Americans believe that race and ethnic discrimination is a big problem. 
A couple of years ago, that number barely reached 50% of white people. So we are at a time when the images of them watching their children, right, who are linking arms with black people in the street across all 50 states, they're watching them getting beaten, hit with rubber bullets, gassed, and starting to say, oh shit, this really isn't just a black problem. Right. And so I think that now is an opportunity for us to look at the ways in which white people, our government structure has purposefully kept black people down and not just in a way of beating and killing, but really in suffocating our economic capability to rise out of poverty. I mean, a lot of white people talk about, well, you know, I didn't commit slavery, so why should I have to feel guilty about it? Forget to have to pay for it. And Nicole Hannah-Jones and no one is talking about individual white Americans paying out of their own pocket to black people for reparations. Nicole Hannah-Jones is talking specifically about something that comes from the federal government, which, again, in the pandemic, we see the ability to make gigantic payments to specific individuals. But wealth is critically generational Mm -hmm. and that so often being able to buy a home or to start a business comes from the ability to get help from your parents and your grandparents. And there are a very, very tiny number of black people who are able to turn to their parents and grandparents and get significant financial help. And the number of white people who can do that is not simply because they worked harder, right? right? We know this. There has been significant government aid throughout American history that was aimed specifically at white people. I always think about the Federal Housing Authority in the 50s coming out of World War II saying we need to seed Americans with home ownership because that is the beginnings of wealth. Your owning a home is tied to how likely your grandparents were in owning a home. The Federal Housing Association gave 90, I believe it was 98% of their loans to white people. So this is clearly the government saying to white people, here is the money to buy a home that leads to generations of white people having wealth and black people. You know, even, and this blew me away too, that Nicole Hannah Jones talked about from 1868 to 1934, the government gave away 246 million acres in 160 acre tracts, nearly 10% of all the land in the country, gave it to one and a half million white families, some who were born here and some who were coming from other countries. They were privileging foreign white people over the black people who lived here. 20% of all Americans today descend from those people. So you see these sorts of programs of giving money, giving land to white people perpetuate. They're all over the place and they are helping white people who are being successful today. I mean, I think that there is a level of 
purposeful ignorance, right? When white people's response is, well, I didn't participate in slavery, and so then I shouldn't be penalized, right? Yeah. And yeah. when you refer to Nicole's piece, and we can go back six years ago to ta piece, where he was really focusing on housing, right? Because housing- housing and wage theft and all of these things, that is where Americans are able to build wealth. That is the American dream, to own property. And when you talk about denying people, black people, loans in order to buy homes, when you talk about redlining, right, which apparently, you know, it drove me crazy. But a couple of months ago, with listening to people who are supposed to be smart and are on the news say that it was the first time they'd ever heard about redlining. And I'm thinking to myself, how is that How is that possible, right? So the assumption has always been baked into the idea that black people are lazy and if only you work hard enough, then you can get all of these things. We don't even celebrate the people that are able to actually somehow surpass every single obstacle that has been put in their way to amass incredible wealth in this country, right? We just say that they are lucky. And so when we think about reparations, for me, I start to think about that begins with the ability to own property. It begins with the ability to own and pass down something, right? When you think about the fact that a majority of black women in this country are entrepreneurs, right? More entrepreneurs are black women than any other group, except they receive 0.00001% of VC funding, right? Because nobody is actually investing in them. They can't leverage their homes, right? Their parents can't, they can't say, oh, you know what? Let me refinance, right? In order to give, in order to give you the seed funding that is necessary to get your big, bold idea off the ground. And so I love Nicole's piece because she layers in so many ways in which the government has stolen from black people. And in Coates' piece from 2014, he really zeroes in on 35 years of housing policy that denied us the ability to build anything, right? And then what we know is that when we have built, it's been destroyed. And so when we look at where we go, how we use this swaying of public opinion by white people in recognizing that racism is a problem. Before this uprising, we have been gaslit into trying to convince white people that racism exists, right? So now we're at a place where we have finally arrived. It exists. So now what do we do with this moment? You know, the line that, one of the lines that really blew me away in this piece, you know, because so many people white especially want to talk about how much things have changed you know i've definitely had arguments with well-meaning white people where i'm like very little has changed and they're like what are you talking about since the 50s and 60s so much has changed Mm -hmm. the racial wealth gap is about the same as it was in the 1950s in the some instances, wealth, worse. Yeah. The racial wealth gap is the same. Mm. So even with the tearing down of segregation and bringing black people into voting and affirmative action and the rise of buppies and the, the, the rise of black people going to college more, you know, and black women becoming the best 
educated, mm-hmm. most degree-having group of people in the country, despite all of that, the racial wealth gap is the same. And it's not about a lack of families. And it's not about a lack of working hard. And it's not about all these other sort of pernicious attempts to attack our character. It's about the anchor Mm -hmm. that generations of wage theft and generations of being unable to build wealth while others around us, white people, are able to build wealth and move forward. You know, that is part of what, you know, Nicole talks about none of the actions we are told black people must take if they want to lift themselves out of poverty and gain financial stability not marrying not getting educated not saving more not owning a home none of that can mitigate 400 years of racialized plundering wealth begets wealth white americans have had centuries of government assistance to accumulate wealth while the government has for the vast history of this country worked against black americans doing the same So what she comes down to and what I come down to is there needs to be some mechanism of direct cash payments to us, stimulus to us, which is good for the nation in order to get out of this perpetual wealth gap. And I once talked to a multi-billionaire who was very serious about creating his own form of reparations. And that person so far had, had did not follow through on their plan. But the federal, I mean, so we were, maybe the private market person could say, let me try to do something about this. But black people will continue to lag far behind in terms of wealth and thus leading to the other problems that come from that until we actually do something directly to address and attack this problem. You know, I think that one of the issues too, right? And this is this is kind of the fine line that black politicians have to walk specifically when they are in majority white areas is, you know, the fear of an Obama presidency was around, oh my God, he's going to hand out all of these things to black people, right? And white people are going to be left behind and, you know, and this begets white rage and the white lash to the Obama (laughs) administration that brought us Donald Trump. But the reality is that nobody has ever outwardly, right? I mean, aside from Southern Confederates and, and what have you, no one has ever outly said, oh, with the New Deal, here you go, that's for white folks, right? Or the GI Bill, here you go, that's for white folks. They say the good things out loud, but quietly just exclude people of color. And so part of me, in terms of this reckoning, this economic reckoning that needs to happen for black people, I wonder, do we need to say it out loud, right? Or does it just need to happen? Like, does there need to be here is the reparations bill and here is the dollar amount? Or we just want policy changes and stimulus that is going without it being this whole to do. Because everything that white people have been given, it has felt overt to us. But the shit has been subtle, which is why they constantly use the retort as, oh, you're going to be giving handouts to black people. And I'm like, you motherfuckers have been getting handouts since the fucking beginning. Right? Like, Uh, again, Nicole's piece is like, you know, the technical amount of what we do, that's one thing. 
the challenge is harnessing the political will to do it, is getting white people their political power to understand that we lag behind through no fault of our own, through hundreds of years of slavery, through hundreds of years of wealth mm-hmm. theft, through the government helping them. And until there is a direct cash payment made to black people, which should not be a radical idea if you truly understand that the government has been helping white people get ahead in various ways from slavery to land giveaways to money to buy homes to other ways and stealing from black people and preventing black people from gaining wealth and if you understand that then it's kind of like oh well yeah i mean like if you're concerned with crime this is the way to actually try to depress crime in america for a truly long term because putting out more police officers is not going to do it. Torre, but understanding that none of these people are actually concerned with crime. They want black and brown bodies locked up so that they can make profit off of them, right? It is institutionalized slavery because you have these workers because when you're in prison, you have to work, right? That's part of the mandate and get pennies on the dollars to do so. The idea is not ever to stop crime. It's being able to be able to lock as many people up as possible so that you can continue slavery in a different form. That's absolutely right. However, and I think smart white people would be able to see this, that black people with more money would be more economically valuable to America than black people with little to no money who we can lock up. And the only way to get from here to there is some sort of reparation direct cash payment to black people that ends or attempts to end the racial wealth gap. And like, look, you know, I brought this idea up to people before and they've been like, oh, my God, does that mean Oprah is going to get a check and Jay-Z is going to get a check? And like, I mean, that's such a ridiculous, distractionary, obnoxious point the number of black people who are wealthy is so tiny and almost all of them, Oprah, Jay-Z, came from nothing. Mm-hmm. Magic Johnson, right? They I came mean, from literally, nothing. N- literally nothing. They came from poverty. Yeah. They got fortunate in having generally a, a talent that functions in entertainment or sports, right? Mm-hmm. Generally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, spare me with the concern for what happens to the what three or four? I, I was going to say. I was like, I don't even think it's really three or four hundred, but okay. I mean, you know, I mean, there's like, there's like thirteen. Was it thirteen million black people in America? Something like that, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, twenty, twenty mm-hmm. something. Years. And I mean, like, the argument surely does not stop over like the four hundred people who've gotten really, really rich. You know, there's an epidemic of poverty. It is generational. It is, you know a blight on so many of our cities in terms of the people who are stuck living in poverty. Look, you, you're you giving them money in a slow way in terms of the entitlement programs. Why not give them money in a more thoughtful way that addresses their real generational problems, that gives them a chance, a strong chance, to become true economic actors in the society? rather than being people who you can look at and say, look at you collecting welfare, 
getting arrested. You are what's wrong with this country. Like, well, then give me a real shot. I just think that the will comes with the disruption of a narrative that they have been allowed to perpetuate for generations, which is that black people are no good, white people are better, black people belong in their place. This shifting, this poll to me, the Monmouth poll and the shifting that has happened over the course of these uprisings, right? Like this is what has happened. I don't know if it is sustainable, right? I am cautiously optimistic, but like put emphasis on the cautious because America always shows its ass. But I guess I wonder how you, you can't shame people into doing the right thing. We've tried that for generations to do so. You're making a thoughtful case of, well, instead of talking about welfare and SNAP and all of these different things, what if we actually filled the gap that America created? I don't know if the leap that is necessary for white people to get there to say, you know what? You're right. You know, one thing we should do, because I think you and I both in this project and in most of our media work, we really do try to speak to black people, right? And not to make the argument to white people. And I'm sure that many black people are in favor of reparations, but I wonder if there are some who are like, I'm not totally sure, right? And I would hopefully, I would hope that we could be one part along with Nicole Hannah-Jones, along with Tani Easy Cokes, along with others of bringing them along say, yes, we absolutely deserve reparations. The problems in our community are largely not our fault. Right. They are the fault right. of systemic racism, of generations of poverty brought on by slavery. I mean, one of the things Nicole Hannah-Jones points out is slavery ends and you suddenly have all these people who have nothing and they have to figure out what do we do? How do we get by? And many of them get roped back into working for their masters for the heartbreaking. I mean, can you imagine the heartbreak of like, I have to go back to working for that motherfucker. Yep. Like, are you kidding me? But he's the only one who will hire us. So if we don't go make pennies working for him, then we're homeless. It's a frightening, what would you call it? A Sophie's choice, right? Yeah. But that's the place that we have consistent. I mean, you can look at and, and we could delve into talking about welfare recipients, right? You're not allowed to go and try and get a job, right? That would move you out of poverty while you are receiving welfare. So you are trapped within a system, right? That doesn't give you enough money to survive, but even an ambition, which a majority of people have a desire. Nobody wants to not work. And that also is part of the lie that has been sold. There's just all these people sitting around not wanting to work. That is, not the, that is not the case. And so, you're, so tra- you're trapped into a system where you have to receive the government support. But when you try and move out of that caste, right, it's either you go hungry because then they say, no, no, you can't go on that job interview because you got to take the three and four buses that it takes for you to get to your minimum wage paying job, right? I mean, yeah, we don't even have time in this episode to get into the way that cities are constructed in ways that are meant to keep black mm-hmm. people poor. poor. I didn't even fully realize the game till I went to college in Atlanta and I saw, I went to Emory and we wanted to go over to the AUC to 
talk to the girls at Spelman, you know, and <laughs> whatever. And uh, it was really hard. You could take the subway to a certain point, but then you had to take two buses to get to the AUC. And it was like somebody finally explained to me, like, yeah, the city was built like this so that the black residents would not be able to go over to where the white community is, Mm -hmm. where Emory and the stores and the nicer houses are. So there's not only redlining and a physical segregation, but the transportation system, the construction of, uh, I mean, like in New York, Robert Moses, the constructor of modern New York, he built... The highways with bridges, with overpasses that are so low that buses cannot go purposefully to keep people who would need to go on buses, black people, from being able to go out there. Thus creating Long Island as a sort of white mm-hmm. uh, enclave utopia where you wouldn't have to deal with black and brown people. I mean, there's just all these ways that cities have been constructed at keeping us in the areas where there's not much money to be made and making it hard for us to go to areas where we can make that kind of money. You know, it's just so, like, I think, too, like, I'm on Long Island right now, and I can tell you 100% true. But I can also think about, you know, particular areas of where I lived in Washington, D.C. Georgetown, before it, you know, had its demise, was the place where the residents voted not to have public transportation in there. They didn't want the metro. They didn't want the buses because they didn't want the quote-unquote element to be in what was at that time the one of the wealthiest areas of D.C. proper, right? Mm. So again, there is a level of consistent convincing of white people to do the right fucking thing. And I'm like, so when we continue to talk about like how we use this moment to create the political will to do right, I don't know. I honestly don't know. I mean, you know, I don't want to give too much credit because I think some white people are coming around. I mean, like for a lot of white people, abolishing the police is like a big radical idea that has become less radical, but reparations is then like the next step beyond that to where they're like whoa like that's a lot but some are coming around i saw an interesting thing go around this week wilco which is a band that i do not listen to (laughs) led by this guy named jeff tweedy had a long twitter post where he talked about the music industry is truly built on the contributions of black musicians and he said what should happen is that songwriters like himself should give 5% of their songwriting income to an organization that will disperse the money to black liberational organizations like Black Lives Matter. And that's a really interesting idea that I think makes a lot of sense. I saw my man Mark Ronson was like, yeah, let's do this. I didn't see anybody else saying, yeah, let's do this. And like, you know, the impact on America from black people who literally built the country, is Mm -hmm. massive. I mean, like, you know, cotton was the number one commodity on the globe at that time when there were millions of people working for free to make the American cotton industry this massive thing. So, I mean, like, America would not be the global economic driver that it is today without that, right? But even within the music industry, it's far more obvious that you would not have... America as this dominant global musical power 
without the contributions of black Americans, and many of whom did not participate in the kind of money that's being thrown around now. And the idea of giving black people something in return for being the roots of the tree of American music, it's a really obvious idea. And I hope that more people are actually going to get behind this. I just, I don't know. Do you move them out of their greed? Right? I mean, most of the, like, they're in the, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think it's a defeating, self-defeating argument if we start with what will they do, right? We can start with what should they do. They, it's on them and their relationship with their conscience mm-hmm, and their mm-hmm. God, what they do. But all we can argue is about what they should do. And what Nicole does in this piece is she slaughters any notion that... It's not deserving. It's, <laughs> it's not deserving. Yeah. Right? It's not about black irresponsibility. It's mm-hmm. not about black laziness. It's about the government helping white people and screwing black people who left slavery after having built the country with zero. And that, in historical terms, was not that long ago. And white people have money because their grandparents had money because they had time to develop it. And black people, by and large, do not because they had not been able to do that in the past. Now, see, one thing that I have gotten tripped up on in the past is... What amount is morally acceptable in return for my great-grandmother worked, you know, 40 years for free? So, you know, if if it becomes like a wage thing, like, well, like, let's, you know, like, whatever amount I would get, would that not be an insult? I know. To I know. What what she did, what he, you know, my male, female, like like even if I got a two hundred thousand dollar check, which is not going to happen. No, <laughs> that's not. <gonna> happen. <laughs> let's just let's just pause right here and like level set on expectations. Could I really say that that would be like enough? Okay, right. Like like if I sued the American government. And they said, okay, you have standing. And I Mm -hmm. said, you did not pay my great-grandmother for 50 years of slave labor. And, you know, a court could say, okay, yes, that is true. She didn't get paid. And this has a material impact on you. So what is the settlement? This would be an interesting project for the continuation of this conversation. If you look at, let's say, the settlement that New York City provided to the exonerated five who they stole their fucking childhood Mm. right Mm. and decades of their life the ability to work to contribute to their community to their families all these things i think that they got what a little over 40 million dollars between 40 million between five of them between the five of them and i think that you have to look at again oh wait oh wait hold on let me stop you because Corey wise Mm -hmm. got a larger percentage of that, it's not split in five ways. Okay. Because he did more time than all the rest of them. And he did more adult time than the rest of them. So he has a lar- he got a larger chunk than all the rest of them got like the same 
the same, it's the same split after what it after is that he, he got his. But I think that in terms of looking at, right, I'm not an economist, I'm not an accountant, I'm not any of those things. But if you were to look at the settlements that have been made for black people that have been wrongly convicted of crimes that they were innocent of and the settlements that they have gotten for the amount of years that were stolen from their lives, I would want us to look at where we are right now, where this country is, how much wealth that it has, and the amount of years it has stolen. And in many instances of enslaved Africans, our ancestors, it was their entire fucking life, right? So I think that we would need, the number then becomes mind-blowing. But again, America seems to be able to come off money when it is to provide it to wealthy corporations and shareholders. They give them money with no strings attached, right? And a wink and a nod. We're also, we, I mean, we have given, if I'm not mistaken, we have given reparations to Japanese people who we wrongly and tragically interned, right, in World War II. Nicole Hannah-Jones talks about we have given money to survivors of the Holocaust, you know, which was horrific. Mm-hmm. I believe... In Tanahisi's piece, he also speaks about instances of us giving reparations on this sort of moral basis. So there is a framework for us giving reparations mm-hmm. to certain people who we judge it worthy of. Mm-hmm. But for mm-hmm. some reason, America, I mean, America so refuses to deal with the depth of its slavery past i mean we don't even have a significant monument to the enslaved people in this country right like there should be like a monument that is public that is like naming names as much as possible and venerating these people and like trying to like you know rise them up in memory instead we have a president who's trying to make sure if you touch my confederate monuments i'm gonna give you 10 years in prison like so how can we expect to get money for slavery when we haven't even dealt with venerating the people who were enslaved years ago? Yeah, I. It's so much and so layered and the moral, you know, I just understand that America has a moral obligation to everybody else except black yeah. people. Right. Everybody else, we have to, you know, talk about the ways in which they have been wronged. But we refuse to talk about the fact that this nation would not be where it is if for not the free labor of enslaved black people. Like, I I don't understand the convincing that needs to happen. And then all of the Jim Crow, you know, policies and legislation that didn't just happen in the South, but happened nationwide. We refer to it as Jim Crow, but to her piece's point, it was everywhere. There is a deep reckoning that is happening now that we need to tap into and evolve these very big ideas in this moment, because I feel like the moment will be fleeting if not. 
right? Like we can talk about defunding the police and we can get that done and we can talk about, you know, engaging with and providing resources to public services that should be built up, right? Like we shouldn't have had a global pandemic again where, you know, nurses and doctors are bringing bandanas from home because we just don't provide healthcare workers with the funding that they need, but cops have tanks. And so we we have to reprioritize here, but I think that now is the moment to do it. Because it, if it goes, you know, a, another hundred years will pass. You know, you, you, as a New Yorker, which the city's supposed to be progressive, think about, you know, hopefully, perhaps we can get something done here. We have a mayor who ran reminding us his wife is black and thus his children are black. And so he gets it. He gets the fear that black families have about the police and he would make significant changes and even now, at a moment when the city is screaming about we need significant policing changes, and people are occupying City Hall for days upon days and marching all around the city, we just had a budget redo, a budget you know conversation at City Council. The NYPD budget is six billion billion dollars with a b and they defunded the nypd 500 million dollars <laughs> then they claimed it was one billion so that fox news and certain people could get their headline but it but half of that billion is actually just moving money around it's budget trickery so they did nothing <laughs> you're like so, so at the end of the day Nothing happened to the fact that the NYPD's budget is that of a small fucking nation, right? Like is mind boggling to me. And again, I do not have the numbers and I need to look it up for our next episode. But I want the comparison between the NYPD's budget and the budget of New York City public schools. Mm. Oh, I thought you were going about the budget of other countries' military. Oh, well, that too. But we know that that NYPD is a militia. Would be any other small country's full oh, a full military. And, and if this is as far as we can get in New York City, in progressive New York City, I don't know how far we can get in the rest of the country. But I, I don't want to wallow in pessimism about whether or not we're going to get reparations. I want to think about the moral, economic, and political case that now two of our great modern intellectuals have made saying, yes, absolutely, we deserve reparations. And at some point, it may not be a radical idea. Yeah, and I think that that point, that some point, that is now. Is now. Well, thank you for listening to Democracy-ish. I'm Torre. And I'm Danielle Moody. And we will be back (laughs) next week. If they're assuming, hoping and praying with fingers and toes crossed. Thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers that there is a country. (laughs) Pray about it. Pray about it. Bye. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from Mac Blue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. 
You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 